ladies and gentlemen to the Music History Podcast. So happy that uh, I could be with you for this first episode, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, We're going to do probably seven or eight episodes here in this first season, and again, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, we're on all of those. You can also go to musichistorypodcasts.com, get little descriptions on each individual episode for season one as they're all kind of more generalized topics. And then as we go on, we're going to focus a little bit more uh, in season two and three on specifics. So when I was thinking about, okay, where do we start with a music history podcast, music in the United States? And I thought about it, and, you know, there's always been something sinister to rock and roll, hasn't there? You know, at least among a certain segment of the population in the United States, people believe it's the devil's music. And since Elvis shaked his hips on national television, there's been concern about rock and roll corrupting our nation and destroying its very fiber. (laughs) So where did all this insane fear come from? Well, it turns out since the very beginning, popular American music has been associated with evil. And one of the first instances of this is with blues legend Robert Johnson. Johnson performed for nine years. He died in 1938, and according to legend, he was poisoned by a jealous husband whose wife was cheating on him with the blues singer. So without Robert Johnson, without those nine years, modern music probably doesn't exist in its form. Uh, He's a huge influence on so many of the British artists. Uh, Eric Clapton did his own version of Johnson's Crossroad Blues. Now, the Crossroad Blues allegedly details Johnson's deal with the devil to sell his soul to become a great musician. Uh, Since Johnson was young, he wanted to play the blues. He was encouraged to go to Dockery Farms in Mississippi to learn from some of the uh, folks that lived there, people like Sun House that modernized American music here in the 1920s. So when Johnson arrived, Sunhouse claimed he was terrible. Johnson left, came back, and according to House, completely changed. So, did he sell his soul? Did Johnson just go to Arkansas and learn from somebody there and come back? And how has this legend shaped our music? Joining me today to discuss Johnson and his impact is Adam Gusso. Uh, Gusso is an excellent musician in his own right. He's the member of the uh, Blues Doctors, a great band, and his new book, Beyond the Crossroads, The Devil and the Blues Tradition, covers in great detail, I'm sure, some of what we're going to talk about today. Adam, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, Chris. Uh, and I, of course, I'm, I'm speaking to you from my office at the, in Oxford, Mississippi. I'm a professor of English and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. I'm a New York guy, but I moved down here in 2002, and so one of the great things is that I live within, you know, I live within 100 miles of, of, of Dockery Farms. Um, but what I'm going to do, I think you've done a good job of putting out there uh, maybe some understandings that many in your audience have. Right. But my job as a, as a guy who teaches you know, this, this stuff at, at the university level is sort of to try to unpack and, 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 and get, get behind the myths. That's one of the reasons I called my book Beyond the Crossroads. So let me, let me can I, if you don't mind, I want to unpack a couple of things. Um, first thing is Robert Johnson, you know, is is connected certainly in in public mythology, in in sort of American mythology, with the devil in the crossroads, and maybe the idea of the devil's music. But what's really important in my book, when I went back to try to understand the history of that phrase, the devil's music, and how it was connected with blues, what I found stunned me, which is that of course it starts long before the, the phrase, the devil's music 
comes with the blues. But the really? idea of the devil's instrument comes with the fiddle, and it's very old and deep in American culture. So that by the time you get to the blues era, and the minute the black Southern ministers who were demonizing the blues and the guitar as the devil's instrument, which they did. Not in, the, not, in the, not in certain sanctified churches where you're allowed to have guitars, why B.B. King said he was a member of a sanctified church, but in the Baptist and Methodist churches. This is the second time around, and, and it took, to these people it looks like the fiddle, which was condemned as the devil's instrument when black Southerners in the antebellum period got evangel, evangelized, basically, and became, began to believe in God. Um, that the fiddle was the thing. And I, Big Bill Brunsey, for example, was a fiddle player and a guitar player. And so he understood that the fact that the guitar was like what I call the devil's instrument 2.0. In yeah. other words, uh, Charlie Daniels probably has a more accurate description of the devil's music than anything Robert Johnson did. Is that correct? Well, he is. T- when he goes, the devil went down to Georgia. Right. Yes, the idea of, that a, that a fiddler. I mean, this goes back into Western Western culture, obviously, with people like Paganini, who was connected with the devil. So yes, the fiddle, the violin, and why was it why was it thought of as a devil's instrument? Part of it, and especially in America, was it was connected with the Saturday night stomp down. Let's have a drink. Let's dance. Let's do all the things that the Baptists and Methodists don't want you to do, you know, drink, dance, maybe fornicate, curse. <laughs> and, all the fun and, stuff. and honestly, all of those things became part of what people projected onto the music when we got to the juke joints of the late 19th and early 20th century. And so black Southerners who were religious looked at the people who hung out in the juke joints and, and, and I mean, I could tell you lots of stories, but I, I'll tell you one quick story that'll sort of illustrate this better than anything else. There's a man named the late Johnny Billington, was a minister in Clarksdale who ran the Delta Blues uh, sort of education program. He taught young black kids how to play blues. Mm-hmm. I met him when he was in his mid-70s, and I was just working on my book. I had been doing it for a couple of years, and I had an, a hunch because I played with a guy named Mr. Satan. as You mentioned the Blues Doctors, but I'm part of a duo called Satan and Adam. And Mr. Satan, guitar man of Harlem, who'd grown up, I met him in Harlem, grown up in Mississippi, but he used to talk about preachers and how they, they were just into the money. They were hypocrites, basically, and into the money. I said, Mr. Johnny, I hear all this stuff about blues is the devil's music. And Mr. Johnny, who was six foot four in a pinstripe suit, looked like a preacher, but he put his finger up like a preacher, and he's a blues man. And he said, no, 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 I'll tell you about that. And I said, what? And he said, by the time the preacher gets his hand on a dollar, the blues man has had two chances at it. And I said, Friday night and Saturday night. And he said, yes. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> from the, so one of the things to understand is that most blues players, I found this with Snooky Pryor and many others, they said, you know, it was the ministers and it was the parents and the old folks and the church people who called blues the devil's music, but we didn't think of it as devil's music. That was their slur, their slander that they put on it. So when you, ha- when you say blues had a kind of evil around it, you have to understand that a lot of that was about the, the cultural politics within the black community. Let's, and blues uh, people often rejected. Now, Johnson was unusual, but we can talk about, and we're going to talk about Johnson. But, but anyway, that's something to understand, is that it was often religious people who were calling it evil and I think we don't always appreciate that. So did this myth of Robert Johnson selling his soul, did it start from that, or did it come from somewhere else? There's several different ways in which the myth gets associated with Johnson. And one of them is, you, you, you placed it at Dockery, but in fact it takes place somewhat north of Dockery. 
um, in a place called Banks, a juke joint north of Clarksdale, um, near Robinsonville, where Johnson was living. When he goes into a juke joint and, and plays for Sunhouse, asks for his guitar, it's a story that's repeated in many blues histories. Sunhouse told it to a guy named Pete Welding, um, and basically goes in and can't play, and Sunhouse says, scram, kid. <laughs> but I did, and, and, and we know that Johnson goes south at that point. What a researcher named Bruce Conforth found was he found... Now, some people said, well, that, that's, that's when he went and sold his soul. And when he comes back, whether it's six months later or two years later, it's not clear how long he's away, but he comes back to that part of Mississippi, the northern part of the Delta, and he finds Sunhouse and Willie Brown, and they're there, and he asks if he can borrow the guitar. And that's he plays, and they go, wow, our mouths fell open. He was gone now. It, and and that's where the mythology sort of gets started, at least the way Pete Welding, a, a, a discographer, tells the story. Sunhouse doesn't say, doesn't use the term crossroads, but he but he is quoted by Pete Welding as saying, House said that Johnson must have sold his soul to the devil to play like that. And there's something important to understand, is that there's crossroads mythology in the South, more among black Southerners than white Southerners, but it's uh, white Southerners also had some of that, that, that stuff. But there's also a more general idea of selling your soul to the devil that doesn't involve going to a crossroads and trading your soul for talent. It's just right. the idea that you're playing secular music. And, and that, that's there. And it's important that these things get kind of conflated. They get mixed together. But there were black Southerners who would say, well, anybody who plays sanctified music has sold their soul to the devil. They're not thinking about him and must have gone to the crossroads and done it. They're just saying, you sold out. You sold out. You should be playing music that, that is for, for God and for, not for profit, right? So that's important to understand. But Johnson, what Johnson really did, what Johnson really did is he went south and he lived with a guy named Ike Zimmerman, Jewish name, African-American guitar player, because a scholar went and did something nobody else had ever done. And I write about this in my book, is that he went, he found Ike Zimmerman's daughter and she said, yeah, Robert Johnson came and lived with us and lived with my daddy. And Here's what she said. She said, my daddy used to go to the graveyard across the street. She said he didn't go across the road. He just went across the street. We had a graveyard. And he used to play late at night. Ike Zimmerman. Now, prior to Bruce Conforth's scholarly uh, interview with her, when people mentioned Ike Zimmerman, they didn't know much about him. They'd say, yeah, Johnson probably learned some stuff from this guy who used to play in graveyards. Booga, booga, booga. You know, it was like scary. This is what the daughter of Ike Zimmerman says. She says, my daddy used to go to the graveyard and play at night, and then when he'd come home, we'd say, where you been, Dad, Daddy? And he'd say, I've been playing for the haints, which is to say the evil spirits. That's black folk talk for sort of evil spirits. At which point, the daughter says, we'd all have a big laugh. We'd all have, they, you know, the father joked about the supernatural. So Robert Johnson goes, lives with Ike Zimmerman. She goes, yeah, Daddy and Robert went to the graveyard across the street. Now, my theory about this, and I, I, I think I make a pretty persuasive case, is that what, what they did was they went and they, they did it the old-fashioned way. They was hard work. It was a, a man and his student, a master and an apprentice, if you will. They weren't that – actually, Zimmerman was not that much older, five, five or six years older. Um, and, and they knew that they had something special. And, and he was really – Robert was protected. That was the word that Zimmerman's daughter used. He, my daddy protected Robert. The word protege means the protected one. Robert Johnson was Ike Zimmerman's protege. 
And then he went out on his own. And what I found is, others would say, well, you know, Johnson never actually said he sold his soul to the devil. But I found at least he told Honeyboy Edwards in one interview that I found that he, Honeyboy said, yeah, Johnson did that. And he told Willie Coffey in, a, in Hellhounds on My Trail, or there was a Hellhounds on His Trail, there's a documentary. Two people. Willie Coffey, a boyhood friend, and Honey Boy Edwards, somebody Johnson played with, both said, Johnson told me that he sold his soul. But, in, but both of these men, when asked, did you believe it? <laughs> Willie Coffey said, nah, I didn't believe it. He was always coming right. in and joking about stuff like that. And Honey Boy said, nah, Robert was a big bullshitter. Too many. And what I argue is that Robert's attitude was Ike's attitude. Robert's attitude, I don't think Johnson sold his soul to the devil. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I honestly believe, though, that he was willing to allow, almost for publicity purposes, to cultivate that mystique. And it was partly out of arrogance. It was partly me and Ike know what we were doing. Let the fools think what they want to think. What sure. time frame are we talking about here? So Johnson meets with Sunhouse. Sunhouse kicks him out, says, get out of here. He goes mm -hmm. to live with this man. Now, now he comes back. What is the time frame there? Because here's what my theory is. I've got a theory. You know, learning the guitar in the 1920s, they were not playing the kind of chords that Jimi Hendrix was playing in the 60s. So my <laughs> theory has always been it's it was a little more simple, simplified, excuse me, back then. So maybe it was a little bit easier to learn. Am I on the right page there at all? Well, there's a good book by a guy named Ed Komara, who talks, who was the blues archivist here at Ole Miss in the old days, and he talks about Johnson learning a lot from ragtime or from piano players, from okay. boogie woogie piano players. He says you wouldn't have Johnson in his style if you didn't have that. I mean, I was no question that people in thought that Johnson had remarkable skills, um, but of course he played a wide range of material. This is the other really important thing about him. If we tend to want to narrow those 29 songs and think about Hellhound on My Trail, Crossroad Blues, um, and uh, Me and the Devil, <laughs> right? Blues. Right. So there's like three songs out of 29. But Johnson not only recorded a range of other material, including, you know, Hot Tamales and the Red Hots, which he did sort of right around the time he did Hellhound on My Trail, which is totally playful and jazzy and nothing, nothing like, nothing brooding about it at all. But he was a polka hound. He, he played polkas, according to Johnny Shines. Robert, Robert could play anything, he said. And this is the thing we need to remember about these guys, if we're going to be music historians, is that in the age before jukeboxes, if you wanted to remain free from stoop labor in the fields, and you're a guy like Johnson, you had to be able to play anything people wanted. And Johnson loved a wide range of stuff. So I think one of the things I would encourage is for people to sort of ventilate their idea of Johnson and, and think of him the way Elijah Wall does in a wonderful book called Escaping the Delta. Um, you asked, which is to say Johnson is a human jukebox, um, you asked a really interesting question about the times scheme. I did my level best to collect every single account and try to figure out when Johnson got good. Right. Um, and what's interesting is that there's a six-month variance on the front end. In other words, if you actually try to time it, and six months on the front end and two years on the back end, I'm talking about serious blue scholars, differ roughly up to six months sort of between kind of June of 1930 and in the fall of 1930. Somewhere in there he went and saw 
this is when he went and saw Sunhouse. Sunhouse said, get out of here, kid, you can't play. And then when does he come back? Well, it's, it, it, Sunhouse has six months, um, but some others say up to two years. Bruce Conforth says up to two years. So either the, either sort of like between the, the middle of 31 and the middle of 33, by that point he's, he's gotten good. So if you're going to talk about selling your soul or learning it all from Mike Zimmerman, it's in that period of time. And then after that, he's just really good. I certainly don't want to give the entire book away, and I'm assuming you cover probably a lot of this in, in the book. But A lot of it. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about before we let you sure. go is, is the lyrics sure. in the song. Because a lot of the people who want to make the case that he sold his soul to the devil look to a lot of the lyrics in the song. But aren't a lot of the lyrics more about black culture? Isn't a lot of the lyrics more about not wanting to get lynched at night? Well, interesting. So it depends what song we're talking about. Cross I'll give you a, a couple of a, so here's a couple of things. I'll, I'll say something about I'll I'll say something about um, each of the three songs. So okay. Hellhound on my trail. The key thing to pay attention to in this, if you if you listen and you go through the first li- first verse, uh, I got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. Blues falling down like hail. Blues falling down like hail. Got to keep moving. Um, there's a hellhound on my trail. Things keep reminding me. There's a hellhound on my trail. There is a social resonance. You could say that that he's worried about being lynched. You could say he's trying to return to the scene in which he sold his soul. You can say all those things. What he's clearly doing is he's 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 evoking something that seems kind of scary. The problem is what happens in the second verse. If today was Christmas Eve and tomorrow was Christmas Day, if today was Christmas Eve and tomorrow was Christmas Day, and then he says, he turns aside and he goes, oh, baby, wouldn't we have a time? <laughs> and then he goes, all I need would be my little rider just to pass the time away. He's taking the two most religious days in the black church year, except for Easter, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and he's saying, I'd like to spend them in bed with you, baby. <laughs> and, when, and, and, and so my argument is that he's using... Kind of, he's he's playing with us, but he's doing it because he wants to seduce the women in his audience or his imputed recording audience. So that that's the thing I focus on is I focus on those spoken asides, which in a, in typical blues fashion you might try to scare people with some of the sung stuff, but then you turn to the side and you go, you know, wouldn't we have a time, baby? <laughs> which is like it doesn't and and the and the tension between the lyrics and that spoken aside right. is what interests me. That's the blues. Right. in a funny way. Well, the same thing happens in Me and the Devil Blues. Um, and there he says, you know, he, he invokes the name Satan. He goes, Me and the Devil was walking side by side, and it does indeed seem like there's a problem. And it seems like he's really pissed off at the woman who maybe has, has left him, and, you know, the devil's almost like the part of him that wants to beat on her, right? Except if you go and look at, listen to those recordings, you hear that in two of the verses, he has a, a, a kind of spoken aside. In the first one, he goes, oh, no, baby, you know, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't do such and such. He's sort of very almost apologetic, kind of like, it's just a, you know, I'm just joking. And in the last one, he goes, baby, I don't care where you bury my body when I'm dead and gone. Again, he's undercutting what some might want to see as the seriousness of the song. So there's a kind of swagger. I think this is of a piece with his willingness to let us think that Crossroads mythology is in effect. And that brings me to Crossroads Blues. And remember, it's three words. Most people, they think about Clapton, which is Crossroads, one word, but it's like Crossroad Blues. Right. Why do I focus on that? Because so many people can't even get, even scholars don't get the title of the song correct. Yeah. If you're going to deal with Johnson, you've got to mm-hmm. get the facts right. Now, here's the interesting thing about that song. 
if you look at the Southern mythology about selling your soul, they, the, the, the mythology involves a, either a tall black man or the devil. Uh, it involves various kinds of things. It involves a, a, a crossroads late at night. It involves a sort of exchange in, for which you get talent. Um, none of these things are there. Um, he goes to the crossroads. He doesn't meet the devil. He doesn't mention his soul. He, although he does mention wanting to be saved, uh, he doesn't mention getting talent. What I do is say, why focus on this song and not another song called Crossroads by Cousin Leroy? There's a wonderful tune that recording that came out in the late 1950s, which has all of that stuff. I mean, he goes, I went to the crossroads, I went to the crossroads, there I met the devil. <laughs> and I sold my, <laughs> I sold, you know, and he Pretty taught bomb. me how to play guitar, you know. He has the whole folkloric ritual in a blues song, but Johnson doesn't. And, and what's interesting is that most people sort of miss that. They sort of somehow assume that it's there, but it's, it, 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 there's an awful lot of implication that's required in order to, to say. He's, he, for, so I, I guess what I think is you can read that song as he's revisiting the place where he sold his soul and wishing he could somehow get it back, but he never says that at all, although he does say he does pray to the... He does pray to the Lord. I fell down on my knees and begged the Lord for mercy, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this answers your question, but my point is when you look closely at those lyrics, there's a whole lot of stuff going on, but it's, yeah. not, it's not quite as simple as, as, as people might have, it, have us believe. I don't think that question was actually meant to be answered, but uh, you know, you've given us a lot <laughs> to unpack here, and I know there's so much more to Good. talk about, and we've probably pissed off all of Clarksdale, Mississippi, but that's okay. The... Uh, the tourist trap is not that great, folks. You can skip that one. And uh, Well, and I take it apart. I tell you the whole history of that location, and it's a fascinating history, but it doesn't really have much to do with Johnson, except for the fact that two things, that the crossroads in Clarksdale did not exist as a crossroads, as two highways or even two roads right. intersecting uh, until the summer or fall of 1935. At that point, it was brand new. It was paved, and Robert Johnson could have sat there and dreamed up his song, but it was long past the time when he sold his soul, if you believe that he sold his soul, or long past the time, right? So it, it's, there's an interesting kind of history there, too, and I try to get to that in my book. Adam, uh, why don't you mention the book one more time for the folks if they want to learn more about Robert Johnson and the devil and its association with the blues. Tell them how they could do it. Sure, yeah. The book, the book which was published last year uh, by the University of North Carolina Press is called Beyond the Crossroads, the Devil and the Blues Tradition. And the third chapter has uh, it, not only a lot of stuff about Johnson and about the Crossroads and Clarksdale, but about the movie Crossroads, the one with Ralph Macchio and, and uh, Joe Seneca that most of us know. And I, I kind of frame it as, as a, a movie about the anxieties of blues culture in the early to mid-80s when Stevie Ray Vaughan was suddenly coming on the scene and, and the first white blues musicians were actually winning Blues Music Awards or Handy, W.C. Handy Awards, and I, I, I talk about how I think that that kind of shows up um, in that film. Yeah, so. that's very interesting. Adam Gusso, yeah. thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Really appreciate the insights into uh, Robert Johnson and the cultural stuff, I think, is what really hit home for me. So, again, thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Uh, folks, once again, you can uh, check out his book, Beyond the Crossroads, The Devil and the Blues Tradition. Don't forget, follow us on Twitter at Music History Pod, all one word there. You can uh, follow me on Instagram and Facebook for more information on the Music History Podcast, just at Chris Scheman, S-C-H-I-E-M-A-N. Music History Podcasts, with the S on it, dot com is the website to go to, and 
Of course, we're on iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud, and whoever else wants to take it can have it. All right. Again, please, folks, uh, feel free to check out the rest of this season's episode, and we thank you for listening.